This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our topic this week is the U.S. budget, and our guest is a former chair of the Senate Budget Committee, Senator Kent Conrad. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with former U.S. Senator Kent Conrad next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. You can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Former U.S. Senator Kent Conrad served as chair of the Senate Budget Committee in some very difficult times. The North Dakota Democrat says fiscal policy decisions are difficult because they require compromise from the people and their representatives who are angry and deeply divided. After the calamity that we had in 2008, where we came very close to going into a depression, and I want to emphasize that, 2008, we came very close to going into a depression. I was in a meeting with the Secretary of the Treasury and the Bush administration, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mr. Bernanke, and they told us that if they did not rescue AIG, the big insurance company, that there would be a financial collapse in the United States within 10 days. And they didn't hedge, they didn't say maybe, there could be. They said there will be. So when you've had very tough economic times, and, you know, a lot of people lost half of their net wealth, it hardens people. It makes them angry. And we've had a long period now of economic stagnation. That is, the middle class not improving in terms of their economic condition. That makes people angry. And that anger is reflected in Washington. And you can see it in the House of Representatives. Our Republican friends there really are on the brink of not being able to govern. And again, that reflects, I think, very much the deep divisions that are that are in the American people. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew has upped the deadline for a question about the debt ceiling, and we're operating under a CR until the 11th of December. Uh, Congress seems to work better under pressure. There is some real pressure here and real polarity on these issues. What's at stake? Well, the full faith and credit of the United States is what is at stake. If we would not increase the debt limit, the United States would not be able to pay the bills it has already incurred. In other words, a lot of people think you're extending the debt limit, you're making possible more spending. Uh, not really. What you are doing is paying the bills that have already come due. And if a country would fail to pay its bills, just like an individual, Uh, your credit would go down the drain. And, of course, the United States is very reliant on credit, just as every other major country in the world is reliant on credit, being able to borrow, uh, because we have chosen to spend more than we are willing to tax. 
And uh, some of us have argued strenuously that we ought to get on a path to balancing our budget. Uh, we ought to do that um, by cutting spending, especially reforming our entitlement programs because Medicare and Social Security that are major entitlement programs are headed for insolvency. That's not according to Kent Conrad. That's not according to any partisan source. That's according to the trustees of those programs. So we've got an obligation to get them sustainable and solvent for the long term to keep the promise that's been made to people. Uh, so we're going to have to cut some spending, and I believe we're going to have to raise some revenue. Now, this is a, a place where our Republican friends, they don't want to raise a, a nickel of additional revenue, even if it means closing these offshore lo- loopholes that are so egregious, you know, these scams that are being run out of the Cayman Islands where people put their money offshore and then avoid taxes in the United States. Companies do the same thing. The best estimates are these various scams are costing the U.S. Treasury $100 billion a year. But if you move to close those loopholes, our Republican friends say, oh, no, you're raising taxes. We're against raising taxes, so we'll oppose you. Uh, My answer to them on that was, look, I get being opposed to raising tax rates on taxpayers in the United States. I agree with you on that. But my goodness, to say it's raising taxes to make people pay what they already legitimately owe, which they are avoiding and evading by engaging in these offshore tax schemes. And if anybody doubts that these offshore tax schemes are big, just Google offshore tax havens. Just Google that and see what you find. I think you'll be shocked. I remember Graham Rudman. And I think we're still operating under a shadow of sequestration, already affecting even the new farm bill and some of the payments that go to agriculture, other areas of the budget being affected by sequestration. We've attempted to self-discipline ourselves, but yet we continue to spend. Uh, You know, I was part of Bowles Simpson, uh, or Simpson Bowles, as some call it. Uh, That was a bipartisan reform effort to get our finances back in order. Um, A group of us spent about a year coming up with a plan, and it cut spending. It raised revenue. It raised revenue not by raising rates on American taxpayers, but by closing some of these egregious loopholes, by broadening the the tax base of the country to make sure that people who legitimately owe something actually pay it. Um, It reformed our entitlement programs. It cut domestic spending, but it did it in uh, what I considered a more rational and balanced way. The sequestration cut spending just on domestic discretionary spending, not the entitlement accounts. They weren't touched. Just on domestic discretionary spending, which would be education, law enforcement, uh, defense. And to me, it went too far. Uh, You know, if you look at defense, for example, uh, they cut well over a trillion dollars out of defense over a 10-year period. And, you know, I would be the first to say there were savings to be had there, but they went too far. And I think most people, you know, now recognize that sequestration went too far and didn't touch the part of federal spending that's growing rapidly, which are the entitlement programs. They cut the part of federal spending that was already shrinking and shrinking to the lowest level on a fair comparison basis in 50 years. So 
they cut spending in, in the place that least needed the cuts um, and left whole the places that really needed to be right-sized. It's absolutely bizarre. Well, you know, cuts are a great idea as long as it's somewhere else. <laughs> you know, if we, if we study the budget, it used to be that two-thirds of the federal budget were in the so-called domestic accounts. That's education, defense, law enforcement, and the rest. Uh, that was two-thirds of the budget. One-third used to be the entitlement, Social Security and Medicare. Now it's tipped upside down. Almost two-thirds of our spending is entitlements. Only one-third of the spending is in the domestic accounts. And those domestic accounts, as I indicated, are shrinking. And they're shrinking very dramatically as a share of our gross domestic product, which is the best way to compare things over time because that takes out the effect of inflation. So we have cut on the domestic accounts down to the lowest level in over 50 years. And we haven't touched the part of federal spending that's growing the most rapidly. Uh, it's sort of an upside-down approach to a budget. How do you devise the political will to make the tough choices, especially when you do a budget annually and elections come every couple of years? Yeah. Uh, my own belief is you've got to, on both sides of the political aisle, tell those who are the most extreme on the right and the left sorry, you are not going to dictate the outcome here. Uh, those who say it's got to be my way or the highway, those who say it's got to be done the way I like it, forget the other side, those people uh, ultimately are going to have to lose because you'll never get an agreement between the extremes of the right or the left. Uh, you know, I've dealt with them extensively over many years, and they want it just their way. And, you know, our problems are sufficiently large that it's going to take a compromise. It's going to take people of goodwill on both sides to join hands and say, look, this isn't particularly popular, but we're going to have to cut some spending here. We're going to have to raise some revenue. Again, not by raising tax rates. That's the worst way to do it. But instead, by broadening the base to go after some of these tax havens, these tax scams that exist, and make people pay their fair share. Um, you know, I, I'm my own belief that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the center of the country, people with common sense, to join together to get America back on track. We don't have that many people in the middle, though, do we, Senator? You know, in the country we do. Um, and really in Congress we do. The problem is... Republicans now control the House of Representatives, and they are saying, at least one element of their party is saying, you can only advance a proposal on the Republican side of the aisle. As soon as you do that, you empower the 40 or 50 who are most extreme, because they will hold out for a proposal that only meets their criteria. Um, and that isn't where America is. Just like if the Democratic Party controls the House of Representatives, if you say the deal can only be done on the Democratic side of the aisle, that empowers the extreme on the left. And I guarantee you, if they're the ones who decide what's going to be done, it is not going to fit uh, with the broad view of the American people. So to me, the only way a deal gets done 
that really matches where the American people is, is to have it be a bipartisan deal that has the moderates of both sides joining hands to do some things that aren't particularly popular in the short term, but will get America back on track. Will it be easier if we were to move to a two-year budget? Yes, it would be. Um, you know, I, I resisted a two-year budget for many years because I said, uh, I don't know of any major institution that budgets only every two years. But, you know, we've got a special problem, and our special problem is we have an election every two years. And if you are trying to write a budget every year, that means you're making very, very difficult decisions in an election year every other year. And what we've seen is it just doesn't happen. A budget doesn't get done. Decisions aren't made. The can gets kicked down the road. And again, we fail to get America back on track. So um, I've reluctantly come to the conclusion that we would be better off with a two-year budget and spend the year that is the non-election year making the tough decisions for two years, the spending and taxing decisions. And then the second year, provide oversight to see that the money is really going where it's intended. That's a place where Congress really falls down. They don't go back and check to see if the promises that were made by the various agencies of government are actually being kept, if they're actually doing these things that they said they're going to do, if they're actually implementing the legislation as intended. And one of the things I found repeatedly is the agencies of the federal government, when they have a chance, um, often go off in their own direction, do things sort of bend the rules, if you will. They take the law, then they write regulations, and those regulations don't reflect what Congress intended. We've seen that over and over and over in agriculture. Um, and I just say to you, uh, you know, we got to do a better job. We can do a better job. We've done a better job in the past. Um, we're just going to have to say to those who are the most extreme, the loudest voices on the left and the right, you know, you guys give it a break, sit down, cool off, and let the adults get this job done. So let's look to the downside. We're not too many days away from Halloween and scary things. <laughs> what happens if the Congress does nothing? We continue to raise the debt ceiling. We continue the path that we are, leaving entitlements where they are. Senator, look in the, look in the crystal ball and the telescope. Tell us what well, happens. What's the downside? The downside is, is this. Uh, first of all, we have made enormous progress on the deficit. The deficit is down two-thirds from the peak. Uh, by some counts, it's down three-quarters from the peak. So we've made great progress on the deficit. The problem is the debt continues to grow because the deficit is the annual difference between revenue and spending. The debt is the accumulation of deficits over time. And our debt now is over $18 trillion dollars. That's about the size of our economy. So the gross debt of the United States, that's the debt owed to all sources, is about the size of our economy. Uh, most economists would say that's too much debt. Uh, so we've got to reduce deficits so the debt can't continue to grow. Um, and that's going to take some hard choices. If you don't do it, what happens over time is the strength, the financial strength of your co your country kind of leaks out. It's like uh, the air going out of a balloon. It's not a sudden pop. It's just a slow loss of strength. Um, 
and the United States would cease to be the leading power in the world. That matters. It matters to our economic security. It matters to our military security. And it's something we shouldn't allow to happen. And we don't need to allow it to happen. Over and over, the American people, when faced with these choices, have supported doing the responsible and right thing. And I'm confident they'd do it again. If we had some gumption and leadership um, from uh, our members of Congress, it's time for them to govern and to quit with their food fights. How does the monetary policy of the country complicate or complement this process? Well, as you know, there are two ways to affect the economy. One is fiscal policy. That's the spending and tax policy of the country. That's controlled by the Congress and the president. That's the fiscal policy of the country, the spending decisions, the taxing decisions. The monetary policy is under control of the Federal Reserve, and the monetary policy relates to the money supply of the country. Right now, the Federal Reserve has a very accommodative uh, policy because it has interest rates at about zero. Um, So you can borrow money at very low rates. I mean, that's if you're a government. Uh, companies can borrow money at very low rates. Individuals can borrow money at very low rates. That tends to give lift to the economy. Uh, the great concern, obviously, is what we're seeing around the world with global economic weakness and central banks all around the world providing what's called a loose monetary policy, low interest rates on the hope that they're going to provide some stimulation to the private economy. And In that context, what's happening is the United States, even though we have very low interest rates, other countries are putting forward even lower interest rates. And that's giving them a benefit because that strengthens the dollar, which makes it harder for our manufacturers and our uh, providers of services to sell their goods and services abroad. When the dollar is strong, that's like a hidden tax put on every export of the United States whether it's a manufactured good or a service provided abroad, when our dollar is strong, that's like putting a hidden tax on everything we export. That's the reason we see our economy slowing right now. That, and of course, you know, there are other factors as well, but that's a key reason we see the economy weakening here. One last question before we go to close. We give you the power of the pen, Senator. So how do we fix the highway bill? You know, it's utterly absurd. A transportation bill, which provides for the funding of the physical infrastructure of the United States, roads, bridges, and the rest that are so critically important to the economy, uh, to the ability of our country to function. And here we are, short-term extension after short-term extension. I'll tell you one thing. You don't do a road contract on a short-term extension. And when there are all these uh, disruptions, all these interruptions, what that does is absolutely create chaos with the letting of contracts. That holds back job creation. That holds back improving the efficiency of our economy. That holds back strengthening America. And so we got to have a long-term funding mechanism. The gas tax for many years was the foundation The problem is the gas tax doesn't work as well now because uh, cars are more fuel efficient. We're going to more electric cars that don't use traditional fuels. We're using uh, other kinds of fuels 
that don't have the fuel tax applied in the same way. And the result is you don't have the funding base for the transportation bill. I think we're going to have to insist that Congress find a new funding base. Uh, obviously, gas tax will be part of it, but there will have to be other means of supporting the transportation infrastructure of the country as well. Senator Conrad, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on Open Mic. And, sir, it is Open Mic, and we offer you the audience. Well, I thank you, and I uh, enjoyed this opportunity. Uh, my, my message to the country would be simply this. Look, there's lots of reasons to be angry. When I was in Congress, uh, served in the Senate for 26 years, there was almost no day I wasn't angry by noon. But now's the time we got to get something done as a country, and it's critically important to our future that we do. It's going to take all of us pulling together. Let's not listen to the loudest and angriest voices. Let's listen to the people who really make sense, who have a plan to get America back on track. And any plan, if it's going to be successful, is going to have to appeal to the broad majority of the American people. It can't be just the left wing or the right wing. It's got to be the mainstream. And that was the time. We shouldn't waste any more time trying to figure out what to do. we got lots of plans. we got to pick one, try it, see how it works. If it doesn't work, we can change it. But we ought to quit stalling and quit failing to make decisions. That way lies second-class status, and America is better than that. Our thanks to former U.S. Senator Kent Conrad, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley. 